Hello, everyone. Today with me, I have Trevor Cully from the History of Persia podcast. This episode is going to be a little bit more loose and relaxed in structure than either of our normal shows, and wanted to get together and discuss the 2004 Oliver Stone film Alexander, based on the life of Alexander the Great, the Macedonian conqueror, who is an immensely important figure in both of the subjects that we cover. And so I thought, maybe coming from different perspectives, it allows us to dissect the film from both a technical and, more importantly, a historical perspective. So... Let us begin with a bit of a background detail on the movie. It was directed and written by Oliver Stone, largely based upon the 1973 biography on Alexander the Great by historian Robin Lane Fox, who also served as the historical advisor for this film. Released in 2004, it was a critical failure and only barely made back its budget, an astonishing $155 million, which would be closer to about $210 million today. While it did not succeed with the critics, it has recently received a bit of a comeback due to the praise for its relatively high levels of historical accuracy for a major Hollywood film, and no thanks to Oliver Stone constantly releasing new editions. There are currently four available, the theatrical, the director's cut, the final cut, which is what I own, and the ultimate cut. The last two are considered the superior films, and both clock in at over three and a half hours, with the final at the longest at 214 minutes running time. So, before we really analyze, what are your general impressions after watching it? Well, I guess hello, everybody. Um, I thought it was a surprisingly good ancient history movie. Now, that's not exactly an impressive genre to be working with, but the attention to detail with the settings and the costumes alone just sets it up to be more faithful to history than most other options out there. Yeah, I mean, with considering the competition the film had at the time, even, let's say, uh, 300 came out, I believe, in 2006. Uh, Troy was the same year as Alexander, and that's has its own issues. Um, the biggest one was Gladiator, and I think, and I just recently rewatched that last night, so this is going to be an interesting talk, because comparing the two, it's amazing how well Alexander holds up in that department compared to uh, Gladiator, which is so inaccurate that it's, it actually makes me laugh after I've seen some things like the Sutton Who helmets in one of the Gladiators and weird Persian iconography on Roman emperors. It, it's just, it. I, I think Alexander as a film, it really has held up the test of time in the historical accuracy department. Yeah, well, the dedication to practical effects and scenes and settings helps it out a lot too like there's never a, a shot where i'm like okay this is very obviously a sound stage where they added a background later or something like that if they're outside they're actually outside and that alone puts it leaps and bounds ahead of something like 300 yeah i mean with with this this for, for this discussion i've this is the fourth or fifth time i've watched this movie which is not something I do for films that are three and a half hours long. I think the only one I can compare that to is Lord of the Rings. And But this time, I was a lot more critical. Uh, in short, I still love this movie. And it is, like me too, It's or like, you, like yourself, it's at the top of my list in terms of favorite films about the ancient world. Just for the sheer passion and love this movie was crafted with. I think Oliver Stone really, really wanted to do research and cared about the material of Alexander. And you can, it's demonstrated on the film. Uh, Gal Gamela and Hydaspes are just 
some of my favorite scenes of all time and not because i'm i just love battle scenes in general but there's so many details i'm like oh you know that's from plutarch that's from arian but uh this time there are a lot more flaws that i noticed uh first thing the acting is pretty hammy at certain points uh, especially from colin farrell who is the lead as alexander and in terms of some of the historical stuff, there are some of the ideas and themes that are pushed that are pretty outdated, and those are something we'll talk about in a little bit. It also suffers from the fact that Alexander is a story that can't be done in a single film. I mean, anybody who does it, I, I, I feel sorry for because it's so huge in only 33 years that I think the only way to do it properly is to do something like an HBO miniseries or like a full-on production that allows you to kind of develop the characters and the setting. And like in the final cut, it starts at Gaugamela. And you've missed all of Egypt, uh, all of Thrace, Asia Minor, Gordium, the Siege of Tyre. It's, it's just, it, it, there's a lot that could be talked about. And they kind of just throw you in the thick of it. Yeah, it's an interesting concept to make a movie out of Alexander the Great. Because... Like you said, it is such a, a lengthy and detailed story. It's really best to go into this, I think, viewing it more as a highlight reel. Like, okay, mm -hmm. we're in Gaugamela, we're in Babylon, we're in Bactria, we're in India. Like, it's just the, the biggest events along the way. I think that this, in terms of like recommending this movie to people, I almost don't know if I could say that I could recommend this to the, you know, the average person because it's really complicated in terms of they there is kind of an overarching explanation by Ptolemy, who is played by Anthony Hopkins, who does the narration for the story, saying, you know, Alexander proceeded to Bactria and fought the tribes here for two years to settle accords. And but I think with the style that it's going for, especially the final and ultimate cut, it's it is made for the person who already knows about Alexander. And I think that's if you come from that perspective you'll love the film if you don't i think you're going to be frustrated and confused because when they have the when there's such a huge cast of characters surrounding alexander and in this in the particularly the scene at galgamela when they're in the tent with the chessboard i guess it's the giant uh, little like battlefield toy thing they He's like, he, he just starts rattling off characters' names like, and you, noble Polyperchon, and Parmenion, and Ptolemy. They're just rattling off like 10 different names. And I don't think the audience is going to be able to comprehend that if they're in, in the, uh, such a short amount of time. No, absolutely not. The first time I watched this movie when I was in high school, it, yeah, it went completely over my head because, you know, we never really talked about Alexander the Great. When we covered ancient Greece, there wasn't time. When we covered ancient Rome, we skipped ahead. So it's just this these names and if you're not familiar with the names in a different context it doesn't really mean a lot and even then they have to cut some people out like there's not even time to address the fact that seleucus was somewhere in there yes yeah, seleucus was missing uh Eumenes was missing but they did include characters that weren't even there like cassander was there even though he didn't come until after the campaign was over and entered babylon when alexander was about to die the characters were there that either were left behind that you know they stayed too long such as clytus and uh antigonus monophthalmos they i think i think they have to get characters that and they stick with them otherwise once you start you know introducing and leaving characters and it gets too complicated and i think that's part of the the inborn error of a film where even at three and a half hours you can't have people explain 
all or understand all the characters that are necessary to understand the Alexander story. Yeah, and I think that's going to be an issue with basically any historical movie, unless you're doing one single event, like one battle or something. You know, it's all of history. You do need a little bit more time, and I think miniseries are probably better suited to that. But it was 2004, and we weren't really there yet. Yeah, there was no Game of Thrones, and there was no HBO Rome, so this that would have been... There was nobody to pioneer at the time. So now, in terms of the historical accuracy, which is the meat of our discussion... The film does stand heads and shoulders above comparative films, both for the time and now, uh, especially against the likes of the more popular and culturally relevant films like 300 or Gladiator. Still, I do think it deserves to be pulled apart. And I think we're going to kind of break it down to the three different sections. Uh, There's going to be the Greeks and Macedonians, then the Persians and Asian cultures, and then Alexander himself. So starting with the Greeks and Macedonians, um, Initial thought, are the Macedonians have an Irish accent and the Greeks have a British one, but for some reason Olympias is Russian? Well, I think, you know, trying to work out how to portray the linguistic differences between the different Greek groups in an English-speaking movie, they actually did a really admirable job. Like, okay, so we give the more northern accents to mm. the Macedonians, and we give the more southern English accents to the Greeks, and kind of throw up their arms and pick something vaguely foreign, but not that foreign for Olympias. Like, I think that actually worked out really well, trying to synthesize that idea, but maybe would have gone over too many people's heads if they weren't actively looking for what was the difference between a Macedonian and a Greek. (laughs) Yeah, I I do actually do like that aspect, but the, uh, there was, sometimes they would have a, uh, that, you know, the the whole, you know, are, are Macedonians Greeks? It's a really controversial subject, unfortunately, because of the modern climate. But I think that they kind of do do a certain level of, you know, the Macedonians are seen as lesser. Philip, uh, played by Val Kilmer, which is very surprising how much I liked his role. Um, they, he actually did a pretty good job at, you know, emphasizing, you know, they look down at us, but we, we come from the mountains. Uh, you know, my, they were far, wait, sons of goat herders, now rulers of the world. And part of the representation of that, of Macedon in particular, with the material culture, I thought it was great. I mean, the commoners wore, you know, they wore clothing that they actually have examples of from archaeological finds and from paintings and frescoes. Um, And I don't need to say much. I mean, well, I'd like to say a lot about the arms and armor of the Macedonian forces, which is so lovingly crafted. Yeah, everything about costume design in this movie is really excellent. Like, just massive props to everybody who was on that team and doing the research for that, because everything is as close to the well-documented examples as they could possibly get. And the further east they go in the movie, the more guesswork is done, but that's just how the archaeological record works anyway. So, like you said, costumes are just one of the best parts of this, because they are so accurate. And I think with costumes in particular, something that sticks out to me, because when people think, I, I think that's something that stands out to people when they view, you know, ancient films. Like, for example, it's like you say, uh, give me an ancient Roman. Everybody wants to wear the those weird wrist leather braces, which I don't know who came up with that or where they got that from. But every time there's a Roman movie, everybody has to have those weird leather bracelets, even though I don't think there's any basis whatsoever. No. And th- 300, you got... 
rippling abs and underwear like thongs and just bizarre choices but with alexander they had i mean when you have the gout when you have the the battle of galgamela the each individual soldier is uniquely crafted they have different equipment there's no sense of human uniformity even though there's a sense of shared identity which is something that i think is unappreciated and is kind of a lost art where most people nowadays rely on cgi it's like yeah just put them all you know, same same thing. Everybody wears the same clo- same armor, which is something of a throwback to like the, the Great War. Everybody has to look the same, and it's just not how it does. But Alexander goes above and beyond to to make sure that it's present. The only exception to that rule I can think of off the top of my head is Cletus the Black, who for some reason is wearing a leather tank top the entire time. But aside from him, everybody else seems to be in. But at least Clytus is wearing black, which is part of That's the identifier. True. <laughs> He's always wearing black, which is, I, I don't think is, I think it's kind of a literal interpretation, but you know what? Hey, if it works, the, uh, in speaking of like, you know, archaeological, you know, similar, I guess the historical accuracy of the material culture, a lot of the background is really well done. In ter- I mean, some things are a bit, uh, they, it, they don't really belong there, but I think they did a good enough job where it's like, yeah, I can buy it. Where, for example, the mosaics at Pella with, you know, out with the hunting reliefs and all of the like statues that are actually painted. They have painted statues. This is before the modern trend of, you know, oh, did you know that the statues were painted? I thought that was extremely unusual for the time. Yeah. The the only gripe about material culture I had over the course of the movie was the continuous use of maps. Yes. And I get I get why you need to do that for a movie that covers so much ground. But the fact that they were part of the set and, like, Ptolemy had a map on his wall, that was the only thing that I really had to complain about was just, you know, the ancient world didn't really do cartography like that. They, you know, might have a sketch map to try and trick the Spartans into going to Persepolis. But aside from that... You don't really think, see maps until the medieval period. And I think I, 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 that was something I wrote down as well, is that there was a lot of weird, like, they try to make the map look like the Ptolemaic, or not the, pardon me, the map of Ptolemy, not the, his, not the general, but the, the, the scholar who, because there was that, there's that map that's like a blob-like you know, depiction of the world, and it's very, very simple. But then they have like, you know, oh, this is India over here, and they already know this ahead of time. I guess they just happened to make it all into, and the fact that they did so much effort to make it into a mosaic rather than just like, here's a rough sketch. Yeah, it's, that's the only thing. And I guess like with India, they would know it's whatever's east of Persia is mm-hmm. sort of their definition of India. But yeah, just that one little complaint. And that's very minor when we really get into the details here. There were a couple weird ones that I noticed that I I was surprised. There was a in Olympias's uh, room, there was the Chimera statue, which is Etruscan, I think. Uh, but I guess that's sort of connected. But then there was the there was a statue of a ram, which is Sumerian, actually. It's a little ram that's peeking from. I guess it's supposed to be bushes. And I was like, oh my god, that's. I read this in a uh, book on Sumeria. What is, what is it doing here? But that's again, it's minor complaints. Everything else is pretty top notch. And I think they even had like the 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 know-it-all to put to have papyrus with vaguely Greek letters, which is really unusual. Yeah, they did a funny thing where they couldn't quite decide if they wanted to have the writing in the movie be English and Greek style or actually ancient Greek. So there are scenes where the papyrus is written in English, and then a couple scenes later you'll have the papyrus written in Greek or the maps lettered in ancient Greek, and then a different map is lettered in 
uh, modern English. So they couldn't quite settle on how they wanted to fit the language in. Yeah, um, and I think I think that's part of it, where they could if they couldn't decide, you know, oh, we don't know if because I think some of the maps even had like that mixture. It was Greek letters, but English language it was like oh they you know they spelled greece but then they had like the epsilon as opposed to uh the regular e so i guess maybe the only criticism is stick to one and just you know go with it and i'm sure that's one of those things that wasn't in the theatrical cut or the director's cut when they came out and that these are just the extra scenes that didn't get edited properly before getting put into these final cuts that we watched so i'm sure that has a lot to do with it too and speaking of uh things of either you go all the way or you know, don't go at all. Maybe let's talk about the sexuality of the Greeks and Macedonians, because it's it was actually a really controversial topic when it first came out. Uh, for those who don't know, Alexander they depict the romantic re- the romantic relationship, and that's one of the main themes of the movie is Alexander's great loves. He has Roxanne, who is the Bactrian princess. He has uh, Hephaestion, his best friend and companion, I guess the implication is he's Eromenos, and Bagoas, the eunuch from Persia, and technically his mother, but we'll talk about that in a little bit. Yeah, and Bucephalus, don't leave out the horse. And Bucephalus, but, <laughs> but do you think that's, for what it was, do you think that they did a reasonably decent job, or do you think that there was maybe more they could have elaborated on it, or they kind of just like, eh, we'll acknowledge it, but go on from there? They could have committed to it, especially with Hephaestion, uh, played by Jared Leto, and which is also just a bizarre choice. Um, <sighs> but I think they could have committed more to saying, look, this is a romantic relationship, and actually showing explicit romance between some of the characters. It, but it was also 2004, so I don't really expect much from them. It's just looking back at it 16 years later, it's really obvious that they're pulling their punches with that one. In the in the uh, final cuts, there is actually a scene uh, where they I think they explicitly do talk about or they do explicitly show Alexander beckoning Bagoas into bed, and there is actually you know a full nudity shot of Colin Farrell, which you know I guess kudos to those that want that, but I, that's <laughs> I thought that was odd that it would never go further than a hug between Hyphestion and Alexander. I think, you, you know, Jared Leto as Alex, as Hyphestion has eyeliner the entire film, and they really make him look like the pretty guy. But I, I do appreciate the effort, and they do explore the relationships of Alexander, all of them, even if they're not that detailed in the sources. Like, Bogoas, I think, gets one or two lines, and uh, I can't blame if it's Curtius or Arian, but... They do make points to mention it, at least. And all the background characters, you can see them, they're, they're not like Philip is, you know, well, unfortunately, he's, he's sexually assaulting Pausanias of Orestes in the wedding scene. So they do go into detail about it. Yeah, I, do, I just think they could have been more explicit, but it's not that it's ignored. It's not that it's completely whitewashed or something like uh, plenty of other movies about ancient greece have been where they just pretend it didn't happen the you know speak like speaking of bagoas um i'm curious because let's maybe talk about persia a little bit because i think you're going to be much more aware of this than i am um the scene with the harem and or harem and the eunuchs uh is there any remote accuracy to this 
it is possibly the least accurate scene in the movie. <laughs> um, I have now, I think this is my fourth or fifth time in my notes for a podcast script written in big letters, all caps, harems are not about sex. The harem was typically the female members of the royal household. So that's all the female slaves, all the female servants, but also all of the relatives of the king or the local satrap. So this is like Darius's cousin and Darius's wives. Like, they're definitely not going to start flirting with the Macedonian conquerors the minute they walk into the room. And that was very off-putting and a very, the very 19th century Orientalist understanding of an Ottoman harem uh, that every time it comes up in my podcast, I try to point out that's not how it worked. That wasn't the point. It wasn't about sexuality. It was just the part of the palace where the women lived. Like, in terms of, like, some of the perspectives, like, they actually do a decent job at humanizing the Persians, I felt. I mean, they have uh, Pharnakes, who is considered, like, he's seen as a trustworthy member of Alexander's retinue. But then, like, the scene with in Babylon and Bactria, which, you know, different cultures, but they do emphasize, like, the stereotypical, that there's jugglers, fire breathers, belly dancers, everything that you'd see in you know ancient you know oriental ish world they got belly dancers they got fire breathers and it's just it's, it was surprising of how they just relied on those stock images but i think that's maybe the audience's you know the emphasis on this is what the audience thinks is is the east yeah it's it's probably one part that one part trying to give the audience an understandable impression of what the Macedonians would have felt entering somewhere like Babylon, because the film uses modern popular polemic imagery of the East to show how the Greeks would understand entering their polemic imagery of the East. You know, they talk about how uh, Christopher Plummer's Aristotle is going on about how the Persians are inferior. So they need a way to show that's what the Macedonians are understanding. And by, if they play into our modern tropes to do that, I get it. Uh, but part of it is also, I think, we don't have a ton of information on like what street culture was in ancient Babylon. Um, it's one of those things that we're just missing for a lot of the Persian Empire that we have for the Greek world. We don't know what it would have been like to walk down a street in ancient Babylon. We have vague ideas and we know what kind of shops there would have been and what kind of priests there were. But just like who was panhandling, we don't really get that. Now, with I mean, in Babylon in particular, uh, visually, I mean, there are elements where I, was, I thought, well, you know, they actually did the effort of reconstructing the Ishtar gates. But then are there details? I, I, I couldn't tell if there's like carryovers from like Nineveh or from other palaces where I can't remember if there was a Lamassu in there, and I don't know if the Babylonians ever... I mean, that's, that strikes me as a very Assyrian thing to do. Well, it is a very Assyrian thing, and the Babylonians shared most of their artwork with the Assyrians, but more importantly, the Persians uh, copied Assyrian motifs a lot. Um, the single largest artistic and architectural influence on the Achaemenid Empire was Assyria. Most Assyrian imagery that you would have seen in Babylon probably would have come from Persian architects. Uh, and one thing I appreciated about how they depicted Babylon was you saw two palaces. You had, in most of the shots off the balcony on the set with Alexander, you could see this big ziggurat temple palace structure in the distance uh, with the hanging gardens on it. And that's supposed to be the palace of Nebuchadnezzar. But then the palace that they're actually in was the palace constructed by Darius the Great around 500 BC. 
to host the Persian kings when they were there. So having the two palaces and being able to see the one with the hanging gardens and everything was a nice touch to the layout of Babylon. Was there anything particular about the depiction of the Persians that you thought they did a pretty solid job on? I mean, Darius looks exactly like out of the Alexander Mosaic uh, from Pompeii. And it's hard to get the visual culture of Persia in general beyond reliefs from, you know, from Persepolis, the Immortals, the famous one. And we just don't have the same level as the Greeks and Macedonians. So I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. I mean, in ter- like I said before, in terms of uh, physical portrayal and costumes and weapon design and armor design, all of that is spot on accurate to th- sources we have from the ancient world. Some of the things like uh, at Galgamela when they're, the Persians do their charge, some of it was impressively accurate, like the first wave of archers firing arrows and how effective that actually would be. Um, but they don't show quite enough formation. And they have the two different types of Persian shields mixed in together, which seems like a minor gripe, but they served very different purposes. So you have the the Spara shields, which are the big rectangular ones. Those would have actually been planted as a defensive line, and anybody charging would have had probably the Diplon style that looks more like a figure eight, which is a small gripe, but it's one of those things where they didn't make that kind of mistake with the per- or with the Macedonians, so it stands out a little bit more to me because I know the difference. The big inaccuracy I noticed at Galgamela was the scythe chariots, which were exactly as ineffective in the film as they were in reality, but were so small in the film. That really surprised me. They made them those little race carts that you would see at like a Roman reenactment or something. By the late Iron Age, when this is happening, ancient Near Eastern chariots were huge. They were like these giant wagons with four horse teams to pull them fully armored chariot itself had metal plating the horses had armor uh there would have been at least two guys in it it was just i'm sure it was a budgetary restraint too but that kind of struck me as like oh that's so much smaller than the reality which is really jarring when you get to the battle at the hidaspes and they have like four actual elephants on screen at any time but i think they actually they kind of in, with Basus, uh, the the Persian cavalry commander, he's equipped in, in full heavy armor, which I think was interesting. With they, the fact that they actually went through that effort, yeah. But definitely compared to the Macedonians, the Macedonians had a lot of love. They really emphasized, you know, the, the individual props. The, the the phalanxes looked imposing and impressive to see that many extras uh, working working with it with the cavalry. It was a huge charge. It was they have the I mean everything about Galgamela in particular is the some of the best parts and some of the worst parts of the movie where you have the I think honestly it's probably the most accurate depiction of ancient battle on film. They they do a lot of details where you know the fog of war. They are everybody that's it's horribly bloody and I think in the in the final and director and the ultimate cuts they actually do use more blood, more emphasis on the brutality of it all. And I do like the fact that they went through the old details of, look how horrible everything is, and it gets in your face, Whereas versus the, the weird fighting in Gladiator, where it's all very disorganized, but it's, it's just a nonsense disorganized. It doesn't have a, a sense of scale and flow. And I think that with the Hydaspes also does a great job where, like you said, the war elephants, just fantastic. The fact that they got elephants to appear is I, I don't know if there's any other film that does use war elephants that are practical. 
No, I certainly can't think of any. Star Wars, maybe, technically. <laughs> uh, they, the big Imperial walkers in Empire Strikes Back are actually elephants in costume. But that's the only example that I can think of. I mean, Lord of the Rings is, they're all CGI, and they're hundreds of feet tall. They're not, they're not the size of, uh, you know, of a regular yeah. elephant. But I do, I do appreciate the fact they went through all that effort. When they enter Bactria, that's interesting because they, they seem to be incorporating like Scythian-esque like materials and clothing. And I'm not sure if there's there's the dancing scene with at the wedding. I'm not sure what how accurate that is. Um, it's not, but there's nothing that they could have done that would have been. If you understand what I mean, they we know so little about the actual living culture of a Caymanid Bactria and Sogdia. Um, and it's the same thing that th- happens when they get to the cities in India, too, is that we just don't have a firm picture of what the material culture and what events and celebrations would have looked like. So they extrapolated from later things that were better documented. So you have a lot of influence taken from modern Central Asia and uh, Sogdian Empire when it was more impressive and more fully developed. So they're taking kind of a grander future, not futuristic, but in the future of those societies, what they look like and trying to extrapolate something to depict them on film. So it's probably not accurate to what it looked like in the fourth century, but we don't know what would be. One of the stranger parts is the depiction, or I guess how much the character they give to Rosario Dawson playing as uh, Roxanne, like in, in this film, she's portrayed as almost like a like a warrior or, or some sort of hyper-aggressive, it's hard to describe, but it's definitely much more detailed than whatever is in our sources. And I'm curious, like it's, a, it's an interesting interpretation, let's just say that. Yeah, it's an, an interesting way to acknowledge, I think, the idea that like, this was the ins- this region was the inspiration for the Amazons, and you know once you get closer to the step, there is uh, more of a history of women taking part in warfare and things like that. But also, she's just kind of out of the blue aggressive in a couple of scenes. <laughs> like she tries, like when she tries to kill Alexander on their wedding night. Where did there that were- come from? <laughs> uh, I, I and I don't know if that scene that scene is one of the. It's an example of one of the hammier moments where between Alexander and Roxanne is when he starts, I guess he's growling at her. Like it's like he's when she's slapping him around, like he's getting all heated up. And I'm like, this is this is nonsense. The narration with Ptolemy saying, who knows what the benefit of marrying her was. I was thinking, well, maybe it's because she's the only person he's met in like two years who can speak Greek. (laughs) Yeah, and she, she and she's a, the only she one who vaguely knows the language. The uh, I think that's part of the weaker parts of the movie is well, it's, it's the better, it's a it's a good part, but also a weaker part is Alexander's relationships with others, and I think Roxanne's is very it's the the details extrapolated where it's the implication that you know she's a form of his mother, and that's a weird thread running throughout the film and the interpretation of Alexander in particular that I think is been is probably the most outdated yeah it's the the very oedipus complex thing that they decided to play into with this movie that probably doesn't make much sense and i never really understood why it needed to be there like uh, olympias being a dionysus 
Bacchanalian sorceress who plays with snakes and poisons her enemies wasn't devious and strange enough. You had to add in some weird relationship with her son. I think they, uh, I do like the connection between uh, Olympias and Alexander in terms of like, uh, she, you could tell she does, it's like a very, you know, Alexander historically famous mama's boy. Um, but that, that little detail, I think, even though Oliver Stone is definitely going for thematic relevance, because in the ultimate and the final cuts, the way the story is structured is that something happens in this in later life and it goes back to his earlier life and it does a comparison to see, you know, here Alexander is imitating Philip in alcoholic violent rages and here is, you know, a Roxanne Alexander. Alexander's marrying his mother. And I think that's a very specifically odd choice to make, even though Olympia, like you said, Olympias is a fascinating character without that. And I think there's enough to go off of where you know, did she poison Philip? Who knows? You know, did you know how much was how much of an influence did she have over Alexander? And I think that's that is a weirdly strong thread. Is Ptolemy even mentions like you're running away from your mother? I I don't quite know about that, but yeah, at some point it's artistic license, but I'm not sure what the art was supposed to be in this case. And speaking of Alexander, I think this is going to be an interesting one because Alexander main title character. I think that the interpretation is pretty great in terms of all the weird, there are lines lifted right out of, you know, Arian, Plutarch, and Diodorus. But it seems to rely the most heavily on the accounts of Arian by Ptolemy. And I guess that's, the, I mean, they, they say it straight off the bat, this is what we're going to go with. And I could sort of see why they wanted to go with that. But then there are weird carryovers from, not necessarily weird carryovers, but they are carryovers from Robin Lane Fox and ww tarn such as the brotherhood of mankind the incest alexander's alcoholism and death by poisoning what were your what were your initial impressions of alexander as a whole as a person they seem to want to play at least acknowledge every version of alexander but i'm not sure how well they accomplished that like i think craterus was included in most of the movie just to set up the threat of maybe he was poisoned so they're they seem to want to be able to go in any direction, and then never commit to a definitive version of Alexander, which I think might be on purpose, given how many times Alexander has been interpreted. I want to say that the whole uh, emphasis of, I will bring them freedom, and you know I will unify the world, and A, that's really cheesy, B, that's not really in any of our primary sources, and C, that's so super America in, in 2004 that, you know, he's liberating the Persians and he's liberate, you know, liberating the East was just so heavy handed from Alexander. But simultaneously, that's played up against all of his generals who are all portrayed as morons when it comes to running an empire. You know, <laughs> I like they get to Babylon and they're like, OK, we got Babylon. Why do you need to kill Darius? Why can't we just go home? Well, because then the Persian Empire is still here. That's and, what I think is uh, yeah, look, I, when you have that the the comparison where you know the American you know, pre or post Iraq War you know right in the thick or I guess it'd be during the Iraq War right in the thick of it, and at the same time it, they emphasize like you know what are the Persians and the decadent Orients compared to the the Macedonians and Alexander is the is supposed to be the voice of reason saying like you know what difference are you between what's the difference between you and them. And in the terribly acted scene between Cassander and Alexander, 
that you know every time I, re- I watch them like this is just this is this is hammy on another level but they do emphasize that alexander's or at least the idea of the brotherhood of mankind there is no divisions between the world there's you know one one group of people that all are united under a great vision yeah i it just plays so at odds in my mind with this king who couldn't stop conquering it's never it never seems to me in any history of alexander that he's trying to unify the world he's just trying to find the world i always felt like alexander would have fit uh fit in really well if he had been born in like the 16th century ad got and got a job uh, as a ship captain working for the spanish and got to explore the world or something like that like that's it's so much more of a personality of I just want to find what's next and not, you know, I want to know about the, I want to help all these people. That's never portrayed to me in any of the actual sources that we have for his life. I never agreed with the mentality of the brotherhood of mankind and the unity of Alexander. I think that's very, like, I don't think, I don't agree with later interpretations that he was a, a drunken madman who, you know, like just was a psychopath and loved killing people. You know, he did, result in a lot of people's deaths but at the same time they do they kind of touch upon the element of pothos like the longing for glory i want to explore the world and they do touch on that where he's there at the scene on at the hindu kush and he's like what gods can breach these walls we can reach the outer ocean we can visit and it's like well we gotta we gotta wait a little bit he, he and Ptolemy even says when they're explaining because it operates on the supposition that Alexander was poisoned. Uh, you know, we killed him because he would have killed us. We couldn't. We couldn't keep up with him. He just was too. He was a dreamer. He couldn't stop moving forward. And I think I do. In some level, it's almost like you wonder: Would it be better to address all the different interpretations, or do you stick to one and kind of go from there? Because on one hand, although you're not getting as much of diverse viewpoints, you are getting more of a coherent characterization. Yeah, I mean, I think by choosing to do the Anthony Hopkins, Ptolemy dictating his memoirs thing as a framing device, you sort of commit to having to have something of one viewpoint, just because, you know, you do have a narrator, and that narrator is a character in the story, so you're sort of bound to Ptolemy in the end, Um, and especially at the end, because that's how you have to wrap it up. But also, you get things like, well, Cassander said he was a drunk in his fake memoirs. Like you didn't need to go quite so heavy-handed. With... Yeah, that was that was something I noticed. You know, it was very much like disparaging the Ptolemies as the true true uh, memoirs. Yeah. It, so I think you know you could have had him just musing about how oh Cassander said this and I you know I said this, but and not have Alexander suddenly drop while drinking, like. If it came out of the blue in a different context, there would have been more room for doubt without ever having to specifically say one thing or the other. Yeah, I think with the I think just for the the sake of the audience, you know, is understanding where you know he drinks and then he dies. Okay, he was poisoned. All right, then I think that's I think that's just you know the, the communication to the audience. Like this is a direct you know as a, I think they should have left it more vague, but I think they were going with the whole the successors couldn't handle the the dreamer that was alexander and i think that's why they emphasize oh they killed him because they couldn't take it yeah no i think that's that's definitely where they wanted to go though it's very funny to portray oh we couldn't take any more campaigning we couldn't take any more conquering or 
dreaming about great empires for the Diadokoi. <laughs> like, come on. <laughs> well, I think there's a just just a position where they literally say, you know, we couldn't take it. And then for 40 years, we fought world wars. It's like, well, make up your mind. <laughs> because I can't imagine in history that anybody in the room didn't think there would be wars. I can't imagine that anybody thought it was going to become what we know is the wars of the Diadokoi. But, like, you can't possibly think that the reason they wanted to kill him was to stop fighting. Yeah, if they had wanted to do that, they would have done it in India. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, I think it just adds that level of... It's it's more interesting than he dies of disease. It's very... Disease is almost like a uh, anticlimactic, some, I guess you could put it as. I don't believe, personally, that he was poisoned. And I mean, there's, we know so little about it, and we have to take into account, are the diaries of the last days of Alexander even true? But I think, you know, there, how many times he was wounded, and, and he nearly died in many different times. He died, almost died of disease in Asia Minor. He almost died of a, a chest wound in India, and I think just collapsing out of sheer exhaustion, low constitution, and horrible amounts of malaria. I think that's just, it's one of those things that everybody likes to talk about. Oh, maybe he had Guillain-Barre. I think the poisoning thing is good for a narrative device, but, and I see why they would want to do that if you want to make it more dramatic. Yeah, personally, it, to me, the thing that I always look to is he was just beaten to death. You know, whether or not he actually succumbed to anything related to his wounds that he acquired over the course of his campaigns, there's no way that he was healthy by the time he got back from India. It's just not reasonable to imagine that with, you know, having been stabbed multiple times, having, you know, taken arrows and disease and all sorts of probably contracting heat stroke in uh, Gadhara. There's just so many opportunities for Alexander to just be worn down by the course of his life. What do you think about the uh, the, the portrayal of, they talk about it, or I guess they at least visually present it, but they don't directly talk about it, is the, the alcoholism an angle? Because that's a huge thing in the movies where he's constantly drinking in the later parts of the campaign. I like the way that Ptolemy contributes it to unsafe drinking water in India. I think that's a funny way to uh, excuse starting down a path towards alcoholism. But I also imagine that if you are you grew up in a Greek culture where you water down the wine and you become infatuated with Persia, that has to be a system shock because the Persians didn't water down their wine like the Greeks and Romans did. So I am 100% believe that Alexander would have developed alcoholism. He'd certainly not be the first ruler to go out on extended campaigns and come back extremely alcoholic. Whether or not that's what killed him, I'm not even sure it matters. It's just another one of the things that would have compromised his immune system one way or the other. If he, Even if he had been poisoned, he had been poisoned while being an alcoholic, while being uh, chronically injured, while having suffered previous diseases. Like He just, like I said, was beaten down over the course of all those years from a variety of different things. It wouldn't surprise me if all of them played a part in uh, ending his life so early. Well, there are little touches, which I think are nice to notice, where they kind of show the, the 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 effects of the campaigning, where every time they come from a battle, they now have tons of scars, and they're, you know, they have scars all over the body. He looks haggard, and his hair is long. But I don't know if that's them trying to do, you know, Alexander is falling apart, or is it... He's adopting Oriental 
a feat is, is the way to put it where because he is definitely they definitely mention how he's adopting characteristics where he's accepting proskinesis he's accepting you know i'm become you know people list me as a god i am wearing he's wearing eyeliner by india i believe yeah the uh, especially the people acknowledge him as a god thing i've always been given the impression and may, maybe you can elucidate this for me i've always been given the impression that that wasn't a purely eastern phenomenon like it wasn't just conquered peoples who viewed him that way i very much got the sense that some of the macedonian army was also acknowledging him as the son of zeusamon because he started that track so early in the campaigns i think that with the with the you know alexander you know the the, the man the god i think with with greek culture at the time it wasn't so much that the controversy wasn't as, you know, Alexander was, you know, semi-divine in the sense that, because they, you know, the whole story, the alleged, the alleged stories of Olympias telling people, oh, he was birthed by Zeus who visited me in the form of a lightning bolt or some snakes. And I think the controversy was, it was the dissonance between Alexander saying, I'm the son of a god, and then by implicitly denying Philip as his father, who... The Macedonian army and the old guard like Parmenio and Clytus were in- incredibly loyal to. And I think that was part of the issue where I think some of the mass, like they started to revere Alexander as a, de- a deified figure after his death. Because the whole thing with Greek mythology is you, at a certain point, you could, if you achieved enough glory, you would become eternal or immortal like Heracles, or I guess Achilles became immortal in the sense through his through his his uh, his glory, what he did in, in Troy. And, Alex, and Alexander was very conscious about doing that. He wanted to achieve glory, and the visit to the Siwa Oasis with the Temple of Amon is kind of just solidified. Like, oh yeah, okay, I'm the son of a god. You know, I have to still do great things to achieve that. And I, I don't know if I agree with the fact that. When they present it as, oh, you know, you view yourself a god, that's how terrible you are, and that's very oriental. Whereas, you know, by that point, the Greeks and Macedonians kind of are like, yeah, yeah, I consider he was the greatest conqueror to ever live. He was Achilles 2.0. Yeah, I can, I can completely imagine why they characterize the old guard, like Parmenian, as shunning uh, the idea of Alexander as the son of Zeus, just because... Yeah, it does invalidate Philip, and it, you know it is this kid who you watched grow up, getting a little full of himself. I get the old guard people. It's the it's Alexander's peers and the people and the soldiers who seem to be agitated by it in some of the scenes, like uh, you know their entourage when they're in India uh, starts buying into uh, Cletus getting angry. So I'm I just wonder like. I think they overplay Macedonian anger at a divine Alexander because I think Macedonian buying into divine Alexander was probably key to progressing that. And I think that it more has to do with the perception of Alexander is now moving from a cons- like strictly Macedonians and Macedonians first into he's adopting the Im- of an imperial figure, he's no longer he can't just do Macedonian things to win over the, the Persians, Bactrians, Babylonians. It, he's just too many people to work with, where he can't not start to adopt some of the of the customs and characteristics 
And I think the the, the proskinesis thing is one of those you know, simple examples where it's interpreted as like, you know, they worship the ground you walk on, whereas it's more of a form of politeness. Then they do do the proskinesis and it's very subdued, which I like. Yeah, well, even in the like historical sources like Aragon, where you have Greek criticisms of Alexander's medizing and starting to take on Persian traits and act like a Persian king, it's very much this continued Greek idea that goes all the way back to Herodotus that, oh, all Persians are slaves, they worship their king. And it's not that, it's just that they do things that Greeks associated with worship or slavery as a matter of course, uh, like proskinesis, or just the Greek idea of citizenship was entirely unknown in Persia and Mesopotamia. So they didn't have that kind of freedom, but they weren't slaves. They had, you know, the basic freedoms of movement and economic agency and things like that. It's just they didn't have any government power because that's the point of an absolute monarchy, uh, which was a foreign concept to the Greeks and maybe justifiably abhorrent to them, but not slavery. That was one of the things they were missing. I'm surprised there was actually no sense of there was no slaves in the movie as far as i could tell and i think with they but overall like they did a reasonably good job at like showing the transformation of alexander's army from you know macedonian conquest force to an enormous moving city of people of all different cultures and i and even the armies like the battle scenes like when you compare galgamela all Macedonians. But then as you progress further, you start to see, you know, Scythians, you start to see Persians and, you know, Indian allies. And I do like that aspect where they see, they do see the transformation from Macedonian to imperial. But I guess it's the, how do they address the conflict between that and his, you know, his troops? Like the famous scene with, you know, not the famous scene, but the, the incident with Clytes the Black, where he spears him through the stomach and then it's a huge controversy, you know, why, how dare you not list yourself with Philip and, you know, us Macedonians, and I think that there are elements where I think they could have done better, but I think overall they succeeded in showing that controversy. Yeah, there's the scene in the Hindu Kush, which I think is the one time they address slaves in the movie, because they show uh, slaves moving the wagons through the snow and Ptolemy uh, comments on it. They Ptolemy calls them a mobile empire. And I really liked that because it really does give this sense of how the Alexandrian army w- had a baggage train stretching from Babylon up into Bactria and down, just trying to follow Alexander's course as he went along, just trying to maintain this massive migratory force. And they really did I think towards the end of his campaigns become something comparable to a migratory empire just because of how many people and how much infrastructure has to follow an army like that. I felt that with the the Alexander as the as the imperial ruler when they get back to Babylon, I think that scene is very it's very condensed. He's you know he's like saying we have to have libraries, we got to get cut down more trees and here's you know dig the great ditches and I think it's it's really basing it off of the last plans and which are dubious at best. And I think I did laugh when they actually said, he's talking about what we're going to move through the West and go through North Africa. And then we'll, we'll conquer the Roman tribe. You know, they're great fighters. <laughs> I just, I had to laugh. Well, I'm not sure that line made it into my cut. He mentions Arabia in the ultimate it, edition, but I don't think he mentions Rome at all. And that's a funny thing to bother pointing out because Arabia yeah, is did. the story I've always believed. 
because it seemed very in character that, yeah, it's an impassable desert, but I'm sure we'll find the end eventually. <laughs> yeah, he yeah he mentions uh, he goes to he mentions Arabia and then mentions I yeah, I watched this movie about a weekend ago. I think he mentions Carthage. He says, "I oh, will car we'll go through North Africa to the Pills of Hercules, then we'll circle around and." go through the forests of Germany. He doesn't say Germany, but like the great forest, the Hyrcanian forest, and then, and the Roman, and he just like offhandedly measured mentions and the Roman tribe, good fighters. We'll, we'll conquer them too. I just, I was like, Oh, okay. Well you just, everything was so great. And then they just mentioned the Roman tribe. Probably well, not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, as much as Livy likes to, you know, postulate about that, I don't think, I don't think it was even remotely an idea. Do you think that uh, what what are your thoughts on the the portrayal of Alexander by Colin Farrell? I think this is a very divisive subject because he's either seen as gloriously hammy and over the top or not too bad. What are your what is your thought? I'm pretty neutral on it personally. I think he's not at all the actor that I would ever have picked to play an Alexander figure and I think you can see as his career developed that that's not the kind of role he went for in the future, and there's a reason for that. It's just not what he's particularly good at or interested in, I think. I don't think it was bad. Um, There were some scenes that were over the top, but there were also scenes that were very well acted and kind of understated. There were certainly better calls, but I think I prefer something like this to something like Troy, where you did get the biggest stars of the day to come be your ancient figures, and it was really just them hamming it up as these famous people. Yeah, I think with, uh, I mean, some of the acting choices I really liked, like, I actually really liked, surprisingly, I like Val Kilmer as Philip, which I did not expect, and I didn't know he was in the movie until I started watching, I thought, is that, uh, is that the guy from Top Gun? But then, uh, Anthony Hopkins as Ptolemy, I love it, you know, I love Anthony Hopkins as Ptolemy, oh, God, what's his name? Um, he has a big booming voice. Brian Blessed was the uh, was the wrestling coach in the early parts of the film. He was great. Christopher Plummer is Aristotle. Great. And then other parts. Uh, Angelina Jolie. I I don't know what was going on there with the. They needed a name. They needed a name to anchor the film. Is just the best I can come up with. I have no idea why she was there, but I don't know why she was like Russian. It was like very. I guess I guess because if you're going to go for snake charmer, then you want somebody vaguely Russian or Eastern European, like yeah, something I, you wouldn't see. I think it was just their way of having of doing Illyria in the same way that they were doing, you know, Scottish for Macedon and you know London for Greece. Like I'm not sure it was fully developed, but it was just their way of fitting the accents in for the Greek characters. I think with Colin Farrell as Alexander, I think. There's, I, I almost wonder if it was a deliberate choice, the way he was acting at some points, where it was almost like a stage production in the ten, like that level of like intensity and, you know, he's chewing the scenery up, he's like, you know, screaming loudly. I almost wonder if that was, if it was evoking Greek drama, where it's like very exaggerated movements, but then everybody else is relatively muted, which I think is a weird choice. I think it might have been just trying to highlight Alexander's character, like not so that we would notice him, but like how Alexander interacted with the rest of the people in his life, you know, as a way of characterizing 
Alex. So he's much more dramatic and crazed and energetic. But I think that's a way of showing him as this, you know, obsessive conqueror who's, you know, always looking to the next thing and incredibly sure of himself all of the time. I think that's part of the way they that they act or that they directed uh, Colin Farrell. Do you think that, you know, kind of rounding up our discussion, do you think that with historical movies in general and when you have the cost between historical accuracy versus uh, dramatic flair and bringing back Gladiator, there are a lot of choices they make that are made to serve the artistic side of film, but then they completely butcher the historical side. Do you think that there's any sort of do you think there's any sort of demands nowadays where you know people want to see another alexander because since then i don't think there's been any close comparison to the level of detail i mean the vikings tv show is nothing like you know they're 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 basically wearing side cuts and wearing leather armor that would be more out of uh like a an, an 80 sword and sand like a like a conan the barbarian film rather than anything remotely accurate and even with game of thrones which i guess is the closest approximation to a medieval historical production i i just don't know i think i think there's a demand for it but i don't know if it could survive i mean i think there's definitely a demand for historical accurate historically accurate thing but it would have to be a story that people could get into like there's a it's always a fun accolade to be like, this is such a historically accurate thing. But if it's not very good in other ways, like if it's hard to follow because you need to know all of the characters going into it, like you do with Alexander, that's a very hard thing to get into. And I think being, especially with something like ancient Greek warfare, it's very hard to shoot a historically accurate phalanx battle in a engaging for motion picture way just by the nature of how they fight. So I think it's doable, and I think there would be a market for it, but you would need to perfect everything around it first. I think that uh, with... I don't know if they could revisit Alexander again. I think they're... Like, I'm surprised that there nobody has jumped on the Wars of the Diadohoi as like a, a Game of Thrones-style series where you could just pull it straight from either like get Ghost on the Throne by James Rom or... Robin Waterfield's dividing the spoils where there is so much to it that it, it just writes itself. There's no need to try to come up with the level of, you know, mat like politics and intrigue. And I think that there, cause these things kind of go in cycles. I think, you know, from before gladiator, I can't name a, a film based on the ancient world that like it was, it was Spartacus and in, in the 50, pardon me, the 1960s, there was a few other ones that came up here and there, and then there was a glut. Nothing came back. And then yeah, there's a, a Ben Hur every couple of years, like once every ten or fifteen years. Yeah, there, well, yeah, there was a Ben Hur recently. There was a re- I think that's the most recent. Ancient... That's the most recent I can think of. Yeah, and I think that's pretty much because two, you know, two thousand, let's say two thousand and six was ancient world, Gladiator, Troy, three hundred, Alexander. But now I think it's the more the medieval or early renaissance where because Game of Thrones was huge for years and there was tons of variations like the Viking show, uh, Nightfall. But I don't know when we're due back for another ancient world. I think it's going to be a little bit of time still. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe Marvel could do their version of Hercules and that would spark it. I don't, that's the best I can think up right now. My pick for a, an event that could start off that 
a new ancient world boom would be uh, Xenophon and the March of the Ten Thousand. It's a nice semi-contained event um, with a, a really obvious piece of source material to base your movie on. I think that would be probably the, the that'd be a simple choice because simply like, it's just it's a novel functionally. I mean, it's literally just fighting, fighting, funny. It's the well. The Warriors uh, from the 1970s, the gang movie, is based on Xenophon. And I think just doing Xenophon as per historical standards, I think that'd be perfect enough. Unfortunately, I don't think we're going to get any of these movies anytime soon, uh, unless Mike Duncan can strike that movie deal, and then maybe we're in for it. <laughs> that, I mean, you, what if they made it, came out with a, a, a miniseries on Cyrus the Great? I'm surprised that nothing have, of that kind has been popped up. Yeah, I... I think it's because nobody knows how to handle presenting the Persians to the Western public, um, which is one of the reasons I think Xenophon would be great, because it forces you to have Persians on both sides, so they're both the antagonists and the protagonist. I think doing something strictly focused on the ancient Near East requires a lot of time to introduce people to that world, and I'm not sure that uh, any production company is willing to take that risk just yet. (laughs) And I suppose with that note, I think we've blathered on a lot about Alexander, and I think as much as we could talk more about it, I think an hour for a three and a half hour movie is a pretty good place to stop. Um, first off, I'd like to thank you, Trevor, for being on here. And uh, what's the best way that people can get access to your show? And what do you do in particular? Well, like we said at the beginning of the episode, I'm the host of the History of Persia podcast. So I'm doing a narrative look at the Persian empires, starting with uh, Cyrus the Great and the beginning of the Achaemenid Empire around 600 BC. And my goal is eventually to get to the rise of Islam in Iran around 700 CE. Uh, I'm nowhere near there yet, but that's the goal. And I'm a podcast, so you can find me basically everywhere you find the Hellenistic Age, uh, iTunes, Spotify, or whatever podcast app you happen to love, or on my website, historyofpersiapodcast.com. Well, fantastic then. Well, thank you very much, and uh, you know, hope you enjoyed listening to this, our little ramble, and I strongly encourage you to ch- at least check out Alexander. Give it a shot. Just stick to the later cuts. Don't bother with the first two. They're hot garbage. So until then, thank you very much, and you know, talk to you later. <laughs>